Hello and welcome to The Expressionists, a podcast exploring how idioms connect us with the past and to each other. I am Helen Rystrand and I'm here with my partner in crime, me, Olivia Rosenman. So I hope you, our dear listeners, are not feeling sensitive today because we are here to tell you what we really think. That is right. This episode, we are throwing shade and giving the old stink eye with an episode on insulting idioms. Before we go on, we want to pause to sing the praises of two people who are totally undeserving of insult, Stephen and Graham. Thanks so much for supporting the show. We are eternally grateful. Stephen and Graham, thank you so much. Your support means a lot and really helps us to make the show. If you want to be like these generous people, it's easy. Just head to our website, expressionists.audio, and click on support. And now on with the show. Olivia, you look happy as a pig in mud. What have you got for us today? (laughs) Helen, I was wondering, is there anything that you're a bit of a stick in the mud about? I'm sure there are a lot of things, but nothing springs to mind right now. You're nodding. No, Do you I have just, something in mind? No, no, I just, I had the same experience. I was like, no, I can't think of anything that I'm resistant to change about. But like you, I'm pretty sure that other people would have something to say about that. Oh, I know. <laughs> Eating pasta and pizza in the same meal. That's one of yours. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, it's true. I don't like innovations on... Fusion. Fusion, not... No, I mean, I think simple is best, right? Anyway, yep, definitely. We digress. I mean, now I just feel like I want to think of one for you, though. I'm really um, just open yes. and progressive and well, fluid all the time. No, I mean, there's this ongoing uh, conversation we have, and perhaps we could ask our listeners about the layout and punctuation of social media. <laughs> A little bit stuck in the mud about that one, aren't you, Helen? Paragraphs specifically. Anyway, let's not bicker here. We'll take the rest of that conversation offline. But of course, a stick in the mud is a person who is resistant to change, an unprogressive or unadventurous person. And you can use it as an adjective. So you might have a stick in the mud attitude or that you might say he's a real stick in the mud politician. I've got a delightful recent usage example from The Telegraph UK, an article titled Is Singapore really as boring as everyone thinks? And they're referring to the fines for spitting uh, here. It makes Singapore seem to be a rigid stick in the mud, or it would do if there was any mud to stick in, in a city where street cleaning is almost an art form. I like that. It's kind of a nice uh, bringing to life of a metaphor there. Also, I think they're nuts because I'm all for fines for spitting, especially having spent considerable amount of time in mainland China. But um, I digress. Helen, any guesses as to how old this one is? Um, oh, I don't know. I'm going to say 19th century. I've got no reason. Well, it's a good guess. Feels right. Yeah, okay. And it's not a bad guess, Helen, because you're right and you're wrong. In fact, what I asked you was a bit of a trick question. Damn it. <laughs> so this current usage that we have comes from... The early 19th century, the OED has a couple of first usage examples around in the 1830s. But that meaning is in fact an innovation upon a much older, now rarely used, if not completely obsolete phrase, to stick in the mud, meaning to be in difficulties or trouble. And then it evolved to mean in abject condition and then to fail to change or progress. So now we would just say bogged down in something. 
perhaps. I guess so, or maybe even sort of mm -hmm. in a rut. Hit a roadblock. Yeah, similar to that. So that actually dates way back to 1603, and it was first recorded in a work by a man called Henry Cross, and that work was called Virtue's Commonwealth or the Highway to Honour. Couldn't find much about this text, really, uh, which is interesting, but I assume it was some sort of religious, prescriptive sort of text. Oh, how weak and shallow much of their poetry is, like an unskillful pilot, insomuch that oftentimes they stick so fast in mud they lose their wits ere they can get out. That one doesn't make much sense. I think a better example of this older usage comes from a 1943 book, uh, Wallace Stegner's novel Big Rock Candy Mountain. So that novel tells the story of the Mason family who move around the USA and Canada in the early 20th century in search of riches or even just financial stability. It's, you know, it's one particular take on that American dream story. And of course, it's named after that folk song, The Big Rock Candy Mountain, which was made famous in that excellent film of the Coen brothers, or rather, where art thou? Where the handouts grow on bushes and you sleep out every night. Where the boxcars all are empty and the sun shines every day. So, one of the characters, Judd, who is a bit of a gambler, is off to do some sort of dodgy deal, and the person he's leaving behind says, so I have to stick in the mud while you go off, how long will you be? So that's a good illustration of that earlier meaning, as being in difficulties or in trouble. Okay, yes, I see. Um, so this Judd guy in the novel, he's not a great guy, actually. You might say, Helen, that his name is Mud. Yeah, maybe you would say that. So, of course, if your name is Mud, you are in disgrace or unpopular. So a contemporary example is, of course, our Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce, a man who has come up more than once on this podcast. I believe last time we uh, talked about how he'd been described as being inbred with a tomato. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we have Johnny Depp to thank for that fabulous description. Uh, so where does this one come from then, Olivia? All right. So one excellent theory floating around on the internet is that it comes from Dr. Samuel Mudd, who was an American doctor who was imprisoned for conspiring with John Wilkes Booth in the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. So this doctor was super pro-slavery. He had a bunch of slaves himself and he didn't like Lincoln's whole, you know, abolition thing. And what happened was, Helen, do you know the story of the assassination? I didn't know it until now. Was he actually assassinated? Lincoln, yeah. I didn't. Um, no, <laughs> I wasn't aware of that. Um... No, so I um, am entirely ignorant about the history of America. Right, so it's a pretty amazing story. So Lincoln was at the theatre, and his bodyguard stepped out of his special state booth for a drink and left Lincoln there unguarded with a couple of his mates, at which point John Wilkes Booth crept up, somehow got in. I can imagine security was a little bit different to how it was today. The year is 1865, by the way. So Booth creeps up, shoots him point blank in the back of the head. Wow. So then he has a little tussle with one of Lincoln's mates who was sitting with him, and they fight, and Booth eventually stabs him and escapes. And within the next few hours, he shows up at the house of Dr. Samuel Mudd with a broken leg. So I couldn't quite find out if he broke his leg in the tussle or in the mad dash to get out of there. And Dr. Mudd basically does surgery and sets his fractured leg, allowing Wilkes Booth to cross into Virginia and continue absconding from the law. 
Um, so it's a good story, right? Your name is Mud, Dr. Mud, uh, you know. Amazing. Uh, but yep. accessory to murder, or there were rumours that he was involved in the planning of the attack as well. Great story. Not correct, though, because, in fact, this um, saying is written down well before this all happened. <laughs> You've led me down the garden path again, Olivia. <laughs> I have. I have. But what are we if not just stories, really. So we all had a great time. <laughs> anyway, in 1823, John B. wrote a slang reference that I don't believe we've come across yet, Helen. No, I don't think so. This one is called Slang, a dictionary of the turf, the ring, the chase, the pit of Bonton and the varieties of life. Right, so slang of all kinds of games, basically. Yeah, it's a great title. What do you think Bonton is? No idea. Um, so from this resource, and his name is Mud, ejaculated upon the conclusion of a silly oration or of a leader in the career. So that doesn't really tell us the answer. Is it just because Mud is dirty and undesirable, like someone's thrown it in your face, perhaps? Well, maybe, Helen, but indirectly. Actually dating right back to the early 18th century, a Mud was a fool or a simpleton in, in that same entry in John B.'s Dictionary is an entry just for mud as a stupid or twaddling fellow. A twaddling fellow. Yes, twaddling. What you a don't great... want to be called that. <laughs> um, and in fact, there's an even earlier reference for that meaning of mud going back to 1703 in another glossary of slang that is anonymous called Hell Upon Earth, a glossary of slang of the men of Whittingdon's College. Who knew? Um, there you go. Where, which defines mud as a fool or a thick skull fellow. I like that, thick skull. It's like a bone bonehead, calling someone a bonehead. Yeah, yeah you're right. Um, and I suppose is the derivation or no, is the origin of just calling someone thick. Yep. So anyway, Helen, I have not held back on the mud slinging. Now I'm handing over to you and my concern is that things are really going to start to get ugly in here. <laughs> I'm afraid they are indeed, Olive. I wanted to talk about ugliness, um, since obviously that's one of the most basic and most important insults that anyone needs to have in their arsenal. Also the most hurtful. No, not really. <laughs> Just thought I'd say that. Um, so there's lots of phrases for ugliness, right? Lots. Um, but they found that they don't tend to have especially curly origin stories like your your mudslinging ones, or at least not ones that are all that traceable. Um, there seem to be lots of kind of folk versions of it, and that'll become clear what I'm talking about as I go on. But what I found uh, was a couple that really help us to get to the heart of what is interesting, actually, about idioms in general. So first, one that, or a kind of set of ones, that highlights their strange position in relation to language in general, and second, the complex ways that they absorb and reflect cultural ideas. All right. I'm ready. Are you? Yeah. Good. Let's go. All right. So one thing that I noticed when I was doing this research is how many insult idioms follow a set syntactical pattern. That is, they are structured around the same kind of formula and creative people just chuck in the terms that they want, personalizing it, um, and no doubt making it funnier or more cutting for a particular person or group of people, like a group of mates. And more culturally relevant, right? And more culturally relevant, exactly. So there are those about being disorganized or inept, couldn't all organize a piss up in a brewery. As we spoke about on 2SER Breakfast on Wednesday morning, and you can catch that on our website if you missed it. Indeed. Or, more rudely, couldn't say this one on the radio, couldn't organize a fuck in a brothel with a fist with a fistful of 
fifties. It's a tongue twister. It is. <laughs> <laughs> you might say if you need another way to call someone a bit of a loser, someone doesn't know his ass from his elbow, or in the US, doesn't know shit from Shinola, which apparently is an old brand of shoe polish. One of them, good to put on your shoes, the other, not so much. Or there are all those, like, your mum is so fat ones, uh, which I've never really liked or cared much about, so I'm not going to bother listing. Fair enough. All the ones about stupidity as well, being a stubby short of a six-pack or a lamington short of a CWA meeting. Yes, exactly. A sausage short of a sizzle. Or I think the most sort of traditional one is a sandwich short of a picnic. So what got me onto this are those that are the face like a something set. So I started out with face like a dropped pie, which was an audience request, actually. Thanks, Danielle. You can also have a face like a smashed crab or a bag of greasy spanners or a robber's dog or a smacked ass or a cat's ass or a hat full of assholes or a jar of monkey's assholes. Or uh, an exploded watermelon. I found that. Oh, yep. yep. More politely, you could say that it's a face that only a mother could love. Uh, And one that... Twizzy, our breakfast host, Nick Healy, enlightened me of, which was to have a face like a half-sucked mango pip. Yeah, that's all pretty charming. So I guess the, the meaning here is is pretty clear, right? You have a face that is like something that's a bit disgusting, something that is deformed in some way, or angry, perhaps. Robber's dog is funny, though. Yeah. Or maybe it's really fierce and like um, drooling a bit and with sharp teeth. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, yep. okay. Not friendly. As far as I could find, there's not sort of any indication of where they all started out. There's not like, you know, the one true one and they're all the variations of it. Um, they're just sort of pattern that all kinds of people know and they do what they want with it. So I got a bit intrigued by this phenomenon and went looking for some expert linguistic research on it. What I found was an interesting book called Idiomatic Creativity, which is by an academic called Andreas Langlotz. He shares my fascination with this. And in fact, he talked about the way that language users manipulate idioms all the time, not just in insults and not just in this very formulaic way. So he points out that idioms tend to be considered set lexical items, more or less. That is that they're cliches, like a word. That's just how they are. And they don't change. And cliches are unoriginal uncreative. Right. Sorry. I'm, I'm smiling because you just made me think of another one that has been innovated. Uh, you know, that I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. And I think it was I'm so un- hungry I could eat the ass off a low-flying duck. Idiomatic creativity right there. Yeah. There's a whole lot of some quite disturbing uh, versions of that. Someone told me I could eat the butt of a baby through a cane chair or something like that. <laughs> I mean, whoa. Yeah. It's, it's shocking, right? That's actually shocking. Also, because it's also, it's shocking. And when you think about it, how often is a bare-butted baby sitting on a cane chair? Maybe you have to eat through the nappy first. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, why are you under the chair? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Mm -hmm. obviously there is a context for that that is lost in the sands of time. Langlotz is interested in the creative ways that people use idiomatic cliches which is something that we notice all the time in The Expressionists, the way that they're always changing and people use them in movies and songs, etc. So his argument is that this is an example of what Noam Chomsky called linguistic creativity. Langlot says, idioms cannot merely be described as lexical items. Rather, they seem to occupy a position between the lexicon and syntax, leading to a fuzzy dividing line between the productive and reproductive aspects of linguistic competence. 
So what he's saying here is that an idiom is somewhere between like a sort of solid unit of language and a flexible structure of language. And that thinking about this shows us how being good with language is both about being able to play by the rules and to bend or break them. Right. I think that's very interesting, Helen. And I think that that dimorphous place in language that idioms inhabit actually is a really interesting place to try to get to when you're learning a language. So I've always found in languages that I've learned and and in experience that I've had with, with English learners, the ability to use and then manipulate idioms only really comes at a very advanced level of fluency. And I mean, I keep it coming across since we've been doing this anecdotal examples of lots of people who have this kind of idea that learning idioms is the way to be a really masterful user of a language. So a friend of mine who grew up in a family whose um, first language wasn't English was given at some point by her dad a book of idioms and told that she had to learn them all because <laughs> <laughs> it was important for being able to speak good. Yeah, yeah. totally. So moving right along, I wanted to close off this episode with a phrase that brings some of the cultural and social heat of ugliness into focus. Remember, that's what I was interested in to begin with. So one phrase that does this, I think, is ugly as sin, which the Oxford English Dictionary first records in 1821 in a novel which is set in the 16th century, that is Elizabeth I's reign, called Kenilworth by none other than Sir Walter Scott. Who has also come up many times in this podcast. He does pop up. Uh, it seems like it's a bit of a register of how um, prominent you are as an author. Oh, yeah. And actually what it means is that like the first usages and hence a lot of the meanings and trajectories of language is all laid out by men. Yep. <sighs> yeah. But not for long. So the phrase itself, I think, is a little bit interesting because it brings up that whole discourse around inner and outer beauty kind of conventionally. We have the idea that it's they're not connected, that you can have a face like a smashed crab, but your mother will still love you because of your inner beauty. You can have a heart of gold. You can have a heart of gold. That's right. That's right. But there is also a pretty prominent idea that they are actually connected So I'm thinking particularly of the weird and thankfully outdated world of phrenology and physiognomy associated with the likes of Cesar Lombroso. Do you know that guy? Cesare. Cesare. How's that? Uh, It's good. It's good? All right. Have you come across his work before, Olivia? I'm aware of phrenology and the beautiful models of heads that it brought into the world, but no, I'm not familiar with him. So he is one of a sort of set of anthropologists, sociologists at the sort of um, turn of the 19th and 20th centuries who got into this idea that criminals and coincidentally slash not coincidentally at all people of colour actually looked different, as in there was some kind of um, connections between them. So <laughs> their criminality, this is a literal theory that people had wow. and it influences culture, literature, you know, especially crime fiction all throughout the 20th century. And obviously has been very much debunked these days. But it's, yeah, it's an incredible world to look out there. And it's related to um, mugshots that comes out of that whole kind of discourse around being able to see how people look. And that's so interesting because you look ugly in your mugshot, regardless of who you are. If you're Robert Downey Jr., like you still look ugly in your mugshot. So it's almost <laughs> like they were made to prove the theory. 
Although some of the early mugshots are kind of posed a little bit like a bourgeois kind of, you know, portraiture studio. Like they're just there in their normal clothes, they hold their bag and they kind of like, yeah, they, they're just kind of, you know. I mean, thank God we've moved on, Helen. Now, that is it from us this week. Thank you very much for listening. And I'd like to leave you with one last Australian insult delight. I hope your ears turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Now, of course, I most certainly hope that that does not happen to you. It's not very nice. And most importantly, you'd no longer be able to listen to the show. You're right there. It's a good one. It's quite good. Try to use that sometime today. All right. Now, I may sound like a broken record, but we really, really, really would love you to leave us a review on whichever podcast player you use or even, if not better still on Facebook. And while you're there, say hi. Tell us about an idiom you've always wondered about. I'm Olivia Rosenman. And I am Helen Reinstrand. And we will catch you next time on The Expressionists. See you later.